Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. While the world is all gloomy and full of despair One thing that might help you is comfy loungewear But I mean it won't help with a war or you know a raging disease But it will help you sit on your bottom with enjoyment and ease Ooh, British boxers, they sell lovely pants and pajamas Ooh, British boxers, which might help you deal with global dramas Ooh, British boxers They are a really nice sort So go check their range From t-shirts to boxer shorts British Boxers are a very ethically lovely loungewear and underwear company who just the other week went viral on Twitter for posting swears about Nigel Farage. So what more could you want? And with the code PARPOLBRO15, you get 15% off any order what you do on their site at british-boxers.com. So don't just forget that while everything out there seems quite mad That some things might be pants and yet also not bad Oh, British boxers British boxers don't sell boxers So please don't try to buy any of your favourite boxing legends from their website Or they will ignore your email Barry McGuigan is not for purchase Will you please stop contacting them to ask? Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that I'm pleased to say will from now on only be in imperial measurements, so each episode will be approximately 46 pig farts and half a distressed sailor's glottal long. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week as the Prime Minister and like if someone tried to tumble dry a dead yeti, Boris Johnson, as he decides the way to keep favour with the British public after the damning Sue Gray report is just to revive imperial measurements. I am very concerned with the way things are going that he doesn't mean pointlessly using pounds and ounces but instead getting stormtroopers and planning to spend all of the UK's money on building a Death Star. Is the UK sleepwalking into fascism? That's one of the questions that many are asking. And I suppose if we are sleepwalking into it, that may explain why there's such a narrative against woke culture. Or maybe we're marching towards it, which would seem a waste when there's probably going to be a lot more marching once we're in it. Or maybe we've been cuddling up with fascism for quite a while, pretending it's an exciting fling with someone we find entertaining, but knowing full well that actually we've got comfortable and we'll soon have to agree to meet its parents. 
It is a fully understandable concern about the way Britain's going, but exactly where we are on the path to being in a dictatorship, with emphasis on the very first part of that word, is quite difficult to pinpoint. On the one hand, which seems firmly in the air doing a concerning salute, there is a Prime Minister who has changed the rules just so he won't be breaking them. But then, you see, on the other hand, there's a can of super tenants and owning the libs by falling asleep in the garden. It is easy to see the signs of cronyism and corruption, disdain for intellectuals, the controlled mass media and hatred of human rights, to name but a few of the indicators. But then at the same time, you have to wonder, could this lot also do the making the trains run on time bit as well? Or would they be too busy doing their own lines with very few stops while attempting karaoke? Is it still fascism if alongside the jingoistic nationalism, you also have to bring your own booze? Are we, and perhaps this is even scarier than fascism if such a thing exists, hurtling into a new inept form of authoritarianism where horrific class-based cruelty occurs alongside people generally ignoring it as the power-welding maniac at the top keeps being sick on his own suit just before interviews? It would, of course, be right to name this new, even worse form of horror after its creator, Boris Johnson, a la Johnsonism, but I worry that he'd just be very excited to have his name put on something which would kind of ruin the point. So this here in 2022, I announce as the year of the formation of Trashism, and I really hope it dies fucking soon. The Sue Gray report was released last week, and as stated by the civil servant who authored it, and woman whose expressions appear to be in a permanent state of being offered a flyer to something she doesn't want to go to, many events should not have been allowed to happen. Yes, Sue, that's what I've been saying since around 2010. The report detailed many examples of lockdown rule-breaking party culture that took place while many of us public were having to wave goodbye to loved ones for the last time on Zoom, unable to say it because the mute button was still on. As the majority of the country followed the rules set by Number 10, the reports state that those governing the country were drinking excessive amounts of alcohol, which actually isn't too different to a lot of the rest of us, except we had to do it at home while in lockdown, so at least no one could take pictures. Sue Gray's report says one attendee to one of these events in June 2020 drank so much they were sick. Well, we assume it was from drinking, but they may just work at the home office, have a shred of humanity about them, and then see what they'd have to do in future weeks. On the eve of Prince Philip's funeral, some staff partied until after 4am, which is pretty disrespectful, well, unless they were black or Asian, in which case it's a totally fair reason to celebrate. <laughs> I am kidding. It was at Number 10 Downing Street, so of course they weren't. The Grey Report mentions multiple examples of a lack of respect and poor treatment of security and cleaning staff, which is really grim to hear. They'd have had to clean up that mess or stay on the door for those events before going home and then following the rules themselves. And I wish, I'm aware this is easier for me to say than them to do, that they'd have just walked out. Or at least just half asked the job and then swept everything under the carpet and insisted they were just following the government's example. Over its 37 pages, the Sue Gray report explains how Number 10 was basically a Bullingdon Club-themed venue during the lockdown, and political and official leadership must bear responsibility for its culture, or rather, I suppose, a complete lack of. But with the Prime Minister who he is, that feels very much as futile an ask as requesting Jeffrey Dahmer cut down on meat consumption. Wait for the report, we were told, and wait, we all did. And as you know, good things come to those who wait. Well, except in the UK in 2022, where we somehow even managed to fuck up rewarding patients. Don't get me wrong, the Sue Gray report was indeed damning, but the results were once again Boris Johnson pretending that he gives a shit before seconds later proving that he absolutely doesn't. 
The Prime Minister said he claimed full responsibility for everything that took place on his watch, which is a very clever thing to say when we all know he barely pays attention to anything. He hadn't seen the empty bottle-filled bins, the altercation between staff members that was mentioned in the report, or the person vomiting, and so after all the things he didn't see, he probably only has to claim full responsibility for his own fire hazard of a fringe, and then he can have the rest of the day off. Johnson was humbled by the whole experience, he said, before then saying it was everyone else's fault and no, he wasn't going to resign. According to the Prime Minister, the staff at Number 10 worked very hard and very long hours during the pandemic, and so they deserve to have a party here or there or every single night of the week, unlike, say, nurses who did the same, but I guess they got some applause and you can't have everything, right? I mean, the Downing Street staff didn't get applause, apart from all the toasts at leaving dues and probably when they finished doing cringeworthy rap impressions to mo money, mo problems on the karaoke. And besides, they couldn't get applause as that would mean everyone had known they were having the parties that they definitely deserved to have, but also hoped no one would know about as they snuck out of the back entrance of number 10. As Johnson said to Parliament, think of all the great achievements they managed during the pandemic, you know, such as letting 180,000 people unnecessarily die or making nurses have to wear bin bags as all the PPE they secured from the Conservative pants donor was faulty, or all that money that they spent on track and trace that didn't work, or as former Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick pointed out with his face that looks like it could be placed under a car tyre to stop it going anywhere, they got homeless people off the streets. Yes, but they then put them straight back on the streets as soon as they could and now keep pretending that they don't know how to fix homelessness. Chances are high that they also had to take homeless people off the streets near number 10 before Johnson insisted on having several dragged in so he could burn a £50 note in front of them as his party trick. So it was all the fault of the staff who were invited there by the Prime Minister or other senior officials, but they did deserve it and it was awful, but now it's also time to move on because there's a war that absolutely none of us are anywhere near. Johnson said he absolutely can't resign because he has to keep moving forward as though he's the victim of some sort of perpetual motion, which can't be true as that can only happen in an unperturbed system and this government is the exact opposite of that. Oh, but also the leader of the opposition and Hokusai woodblock print of the wave but with an arse cheek wedged under it, Keir Starmer, he's now being called Sir Beer Cormer by the Prime Minister, which is actually quite good. And forget about the war. Like, what war? What are you talking about, war? Because Sir Beer Cormer had a beer once and that's worse than anything else in the world. If Boris Johnson's reasoning was a plotline, it'd have more holes in it than an Emmental cheese that was a victim in a slasher film. His apology could only have been worse if he'd replaced it with his own karaoke version of Shaggy's It Wasn't Me, which he definitely, definitely did at one of those parties with an affected and most certainly racist accent. Then to show just how humble Johnson was by it all, he changed the ministerial code so that MPs don't have to resign if they do just a small breach of it like breaking the law several times. Yeah, don't hate the player, hate the game that the player didn't like so changed it, but that is what happens if we have no written constitution. That's a primetime classic authoritarian power move right there, trashes and power move I should say, but it'd also be silly to pretend Johnson would have followed the code if it had stayed the same anyway, as he hasn't really till now, much like many of his cabinet members haven't for quite some time. It's like if Jeff Bezos had changed tax avoidance rules, or Piers Morgan had set out to change the meaning of the word watchable. 25 Tory MPs have publicly called for the Prime Minister to quit since the report was published, which so far makes a grand total of 334 Tory MPs that absolutely haven't, so I'm sure that he really feels the pressure to go nowhere. We have been getting all the possible excuses from the MPs that do support him though. Transport Secretary and man that pest control services have a special net for, Grant Shapps, insisted Boris Johnson couldn't have been partying at any of these events as he was mourning his mum at the time, even though she died a full 12 months later. Then again, having Boris Johnson as your child probably means you'll do all sorts of things to avoid having him visit. 
Conservative MP for South Norfolk and Steve Pemberton's worst ever character, Richard Bacon, said that NHS staff let their hair down during the pandemic too, which they didn't because it was always too tied up in PPE, while Johnson let his down every day by not brushing it and being fucking wasted at parties. And much of the cabinet took to social media to say that we just have to move on and let them get on with it, which is a really odd thing to say when they could have been getting on with it for ages if they weren't always drunk or recovering from hangovers. It's like when I demand to be left alone so I can finish a script after everyone knows I've spent most of the day sitting in my pants playing PlayStation 5. Thing is, all it takes for a Conservative MP to back Johnson's criminality is a promise that at some point they can have a go at ruining education on Northern Ireland and they'll say whatever they can think of to support him. But you and me public are less easily persuaded, and that's why it's very lucky that the Chancellor and Sale Murray Star Wars cosplayer Rishi Sunak announced a windfall tax on oil and gas profits just one week after Conservatives voted against the idea. Turns out it seems like a much better plan when you want everyone to not notice a report that says your boss is a wino. No, sorry, this isn't actually a windfall tax. They don't they don't support windfall tax. That's why they voted against it. This is an energy profits levy, which is very different to a windfall tax because it's got different words in it. And this one is very clever in that it has a ton of loopholes to allow North Sea gas and oil companies to actually reduce their taxes by drilling more, while us mugs get slightly more money off an even larger heating bill that we still can't afford. Yes, that's right, the energy cap will be 2800 per year by October, but thanks to Rishi, you can now have an extra £400 on top of the £150 you got before to help with that, meaning that most people now only have to pay nearly £1,000 more in a cost of living crisis than they did before. Oh, that's so helpful. If you're on benefits, you'll get a bit more money off, which will really not help with all your benefits not being raised in line with inflation. Basically, if Rishi Sunak had heard there was going to be a tsunami that would flood the entire country, he'd wait until after it hit and then announce that everyone would be getting just one half inflated armband each before claiming he'd saved the country's lives. If you own more than one home, you'll also get the extra £400 for each of those homes, but Sunak has suggested that if you don't need it, then you could give it to charity, like he's going to be doing. And he owns so many homes, that's some charity that's going to be getting quite a lot of cash, or more likely it'll just go to the private school his kids attend, which is registered as a charity, because as you know, it really helps those kids whose parents neglect them so much that they pretend to live in other countries just not to see them. That's almost as bad as pretending to be dead 12 months before you are. Boris Johnson didn't say give his extra 400 quid to charity though, claiming that as he lives in number 10, it's a different situation. And yes, that is true, it means we pay for his rising heating costs instead. Oh, maybe that's why everyone attended the parties, you know, to save on heating costs. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be their excuse for all the future ones. A windfall tax was part of Labour's manifesto in 2019, and it's been repeatedly mentioned by several parties as a solution to the rising costs. But it's only after the Sue Gray report was released that it became somehow viable. So, can we hope for even more scandals, like say Johnson would have been found to have held a rave in an RAF aerodrome the day after he announced lockdown number three, or something like that, until Rishi Sunak is then forced to bring in universal basic income? We can only hope. The other meaningless platitude to us all is Johnson's pledge to revive imperial measurements for goods again, even though they've never been banned in the first place, and we all just don't like using them because most satnavs can't really tell you how many twips to the barleycorn a journey is. Your destination is three furlongs to the rood. Brilliant, what the fuck does that mean? You can see why Johnson would like to bring them back though, because it's kind of like the measurement form of one of his speeches. Loads of meaningless, outdated phrases that describe things that don't measure up to me anywhere near as much as he says. Who is this policy for? Well, you could say the weirdo nationalists who just want things to be like they were in the good old days when no one could measure anything and everyone got lost and had the plague. But I reckon it's actually for the Prime Minister because right now, most of Britain cannot fathom how he's escaping a punishment for Partygate. But with the Imperial Measurement System, that's the only way we will. 
Some events weren't included in Sue Gray's report, included the supposed ABBA party in the number 10 flat, but maybe the excuse for that is much like the current ABBA tour. It was just a virtually ABBA party and they've somehow got away with it. Evidence has also now emerged of texts that were made available to Sue Gray of another illegal party hosted by Carrie Johnson, aka the Worst Lady, which Number 10 have refused to deny. But perhaps Sue Gray decided it didn't matter, as it might just cause Boris Johnson to try and change the definition of party so it only means an event that no one in his family is at. And frankly, it just gets too complicated. Rumours are that there are actually more than 25 letters of no confidence in the Prime Minister that have reached posh jaws Sir Graham Brady, but there's no way to know until Parliament returns next week. Maybe even Boris Johnson's own party, no, not that one, the political one, have decided it is indeed time for him to keep moving forwards, you know, just out of the door of number 10 and into some oncoming traffic. If they have decided that, then you know what, I'll hold my hand up and say fair play, sometimes they are in tune with the public. Then again, they're probably loving this whole trashism, because the best thing about making this sort of mess is that they can have a go at the underpaid people that have to clean it up and suffer zero consequences for it. This very long weekend, of course, is the Platinum Jubilee, where the country celebrates the Queen spending 70 years on the throne, though I think that just sounds like she should really eat a lot more fibre. There's definitely nothing remotely sleepwalking into fascism about having our dear monarch's face carved into hedges and projected onto every stone at Stonehenge, like the Druids really fucked up with a spell. All the while, in the midst of a recession, we fund a parade, pageant and concert that only seem to have the purpose of meaning there's as many eyewitnesses around Prince Andrew as possible. Well done, her Madge. It can't be easy living with such immense wealth under a legacy that is prided on the forced colonisation of so many countries that are now rejecting you and your pedo son. But you done did it for 70 bloody years. Boris Johnson insisted we all rejoice in the Queen's leadership and devotion, but it's probably that he's lying to her again and just wanted another excuse for a party with a long enough weekend to deal with the come down. God save the Queen, say I, someone who doesn't believe in either of those things, and so has as much meaning to me as saying, Jabberwocky save the venture capitalists. Hey, another week of endless bank holidays, which is great for you with your jobs like real people, but rubbish for me of the self-employed species, and generally means I've got no work while watching twats dressed in union flag clown shoes, celebrating that one family owns all of the land and takes all their cash. Ah, oh, Britain, please change. Please. I hope, though, that you have a good jubbly weekend. Yes, that's what I'm calling it, and I will continue to call it. Um, And a good half-term, too, if you're in charge of small people for whom that matters. And because it's just a a three-day-a-week and less time to listen to this, I've not got much to tell you. Uh, Of, there are some stories from last week that I didn't mention because they're just too grim and I couldn't go looking at them uh, and some that I just couldn't work out gags for today though it is worth mentioning that Suella Braverman is a truly horrible human being I keep watching TV shows where the villain gets some sort of comeuppance at the end and then it's so hard to go back to the news where that just doesn't happen at all like why oh why is Suella Braverman not being taken out by a demogorgon by now should have happened right like by this point right like, it's not fair at all that isn't how it works yes i am watching the new stranger things which i'm loving but the scariest thing in it is how long the episodes are i do not have time in my life for one hour 40 minute long episodes there is no time for that come on that's a film don't call it an episode it's a fucking film come on people stranger things longer things more like eh? yeah that's also why i'm not saying much this week my brain has only skills for that level of gags um so just a big thanks to Stephen and steve this week for the kofi donations and you know if you want to chuck me money because the queen is taking my work away fact that is uh, definitely her 
her fault. Think she'd have better things to do, but no, definitely her fault. Um, anyway, you can do that at ko-fi.com forward slash bro with a one-off uh, chuck of coffee funds. Um, or, you know, what's even better is if you head over to the patreon.com forward slash bro and lob me even one pound a month. Um, if you can't do that, give the show a nice review on Apple Podcasts or somewhere like that, as no one has done that in ages. Ages and ages. Come on, give us, say something nice. Go on, it'd be nice. Um, and there is an interview on this week's show, which is exciting, and there probably won't be one again next week because there's only three days in this week and no one wants to reply to emails when they could do nothing at all. Yeah, it's the Queen's fault. Again, seriously, she is really fucking up this show. Do you know what? I'm going to spend this weekend scowling at stamps to get my own back. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Sociologists will tell you the five building blocks of society are statuses, roles, groups, organisations and institutions, which is all very clever and good. But what they've forgotten there is the building block of society that is, uh, well, building blocks. It's very clear in the UK in 2022 that development, planning and housing are big shapers of society too. And I don't just mean because we're split into those who believe Boris Johnson will one day build a bridge to Northern Ireland and those who think the other group are fucking idiots. Yes, you are all thinking, but building and development is shaped by statuses, roles, groups, organisations and institutions. And I'd say, well, you try writing intros to political subjects for six years and see where that gets you. Yeah, nowhere. Exactly. The same as me. Mm-mm. As well as all the other many, many crises we seem to be amassing in the UK, like we're trying to catch them all, there is a big housing one. And alongside that, many other ones that tie into it, like plot strands of a TV show, you know that sadly there are at least eight more series of before they have a satisfactory ending. Through clever design, areas and homes can be made more environmentally friendly, more inclusive, more accessible and affect how people feel on a day-to-day basis. And yet the drive in this country is mainly to let overseas developers build huge tower blocks full of flammable flats no one can afford to live in, which on reflection is probably for the best safety-wise. There's high-speed train lines that won't go to half the places they promised there would, but, you know, faster. And um, even more Beatles museums when actually all people need is love. And, of course, lorry parks to turn the Garden of England into a tribute to Joni Mitchell's big yellow taxi. Oh, and the police are making active decisions about the security of all the new planning decisions, meaning that your park can no longer have benches in case they become places for criminals to gather, forgetting that actually they've already got the extensive garden in number 10. How much could planning and architecture be fixed to many of the political issues in the UK? Do British people get enough of a say in how their area is developed? And does any of this matter when the person in charge of levelling up and housing is still Michael Gove, a man that appears like he was haphazardly constructed using pipe cleaners and discarded custard skin? This week I spoke to Finn Harper, Director of Open City and Open House Worldwide. Finn is a critic and curator who specialises in the intersection of architecture and politics, and they recently wrote a brilliant piece in The Guardian about the Secured by Design initiative that allows the police to, well, take away park benches, among other things, which is why I asked them on this show. Finn, I mean, not the police. Finn explained all about what Open City does, how architecture can impact on us all, and why it's really not great to have the police decide how things should be built, when their own Scotland Yard isn't even anywhere near Scotland, so it doesn't even serve as Scotland's Yard, it doesn't even like serve the purpose in its name, what is, what is the point of it? Okay, they didn't talk about the Scotland Yard bit, but as far as I'm concerned, it's up there with the Leeds Castle being in Kent thing. <sighs> sort it out, everyone. This was such a fascinating chat with Finn, so I hope you enjoy. Here they are. Finn, uh, I want to start off with, it's, it's quite a big question, I suppose, um, but I, I sort of think that architecture isn't necessarily something people think of when it comes to politics. Um, you know, arguably, I think everything's affected by politics, but architecture isn't necessarily one of the things that pops up first on people's list of uh, political areas. So, what you know, how much of an effect on society would you say that architecture can have, or indeed does have? I'd say it's absolutely colossal. Like, if you think about 
all of the big issues, big political issues that are facing us right now, like the housing crisis, the cost of living crisis, uh, air pollution. Those are all urban issues that are intrinsically tied up with architecture and urban design. So, you know, where are we all going to live? That's about the design of housing, the construction of housing. How do you make um, neighborhoods that can accommodate a growing population? Air pollution is all to do with kind of traffic and energy and infrastructure and, and, and how we sort of shift from a an oil-based car-dominated city to a, a you know active travel and uh, more low-carbon transport. Um, and then the cost of living. I mean, a huge part of the cost of living is the cost of heating your home, which again is all to do with like, well, what's your home made of? What's the insulation like? Which ways do the windows face? So in, in really kind of boring and prosaic ways, uh, architecture and urban design affects these big political issues every single day. But, you know, dig, digging even kind of deeper than that, um, good architecture has the power to really kind of bring a community together, to give a community facilities and amenities and spaces to meet and, and make friends. Um, and bad architecture has the power to isolate you, to kind of drive communities apart, to make it very hard to sort of get to know your neighbors or, or even to promote kind of isolation or mistrust. So um, I'd say that whether, whether we're talking about sort of day-to-day -day political stuff like what are we going to do about the, the rising cost of living, how are we going to solve the housing crisis? Um, or if we're just talking about what makes a good life, you know, what makes a place a nice place to live that you want to grow up, that you want to bring up a family, that you want to feel rooted to an, a community. Th those all relate very closely to, to how you design the streets and the buildings and the, and the, the, the facilities in that area. Yeah, that, that, I mean, I, I'm ashamed to say that there were various things you brought up there that went, oh, of course that's architecture. I didn't even think about the fact that heating our homes is to do with designs <laughs> and the fact that so many of us are in old buildings that, you know, haven't had any of the, the heating renewed. And I mean, that, and that's one of the interesting things, one of the things, uh, the main reason that I, I got in contact with you to, to come on this podcast, because I read your fantastic article that you wrote about the Secure by Design Police Initiative. And I had no idea uh, that the police had any say in the design of public areas whatsoever um and and i wonder if you could just sort of explain what that is and then what impact that's having on public areas yeah I'm, i imagine you're not alone in um not knowing that the police meddle with uh urban design or architecture but in, in fact they do it on a daily basis and they have done since the 80s um so secured by design is this sort of initiative that uh, was started late 80s, sort of Margaret Thatcher's government is in power. Um, and it, it came from the police and it, it was a way of them saying, you know, we want a bit of control over new bits of city. So new neighborhoods, new housing, new schools, uh, new public spaces. Um, and what they did was they, they, they sort of, the police came up with a whole load of ideas of, of what they thought made a good neighborhood and now today sort of you know 40 years later um every time anybody proposes a new building or even extending an existing building the police will get an opportunity to comment on that design and they'll, they'll get an opportunity to to go to the local authority or go to the architects or the developers and say ah you know we've had a look at your design and we we, we want these changes here's a big list of changes that they want um and they have they have this sort of process doesn't necessarily have kind of legal power. Like ultimately, a local authority is that can control planning permission in Britain, but the police are so kind of well funded and um, so hard to argue with that often what happens is local authorities kind of, you know, incorporate 
incorporate that advice, even if it's really bad advice. So uh, the, the reason I wrote the article is, is because what, what we're seeing, what architects see every single day is, is um, police forces all over the country will request all sorts of quite harmful changes to new housing estate designs or, or, or new, new schools or, or whatever it is, new public spaces, new parks, um, which can lead to sort of all sorts of sort of weird things happening, um, like the police might take away some benches, they might pull up some plants, they might um, demand kind of really expensive uh, changes to uh, like the height of a fence around a school, which, you know, it's very unclear whether it makes any positive difference to anybody's lives. So, yeah, all, all day, every day, <laughs> architects are trying to get stuff built and the police are, are kind of making these changes. And I guess I wanted to write the article to shine a bit of a light on this process, to let people know that this is happening um, and hopefully to kind of, by drawing it, some attention to it, uh, that, that might lead to a bit of change and local authorities might feel a bit more empowered to push back uh, at this process and, and say, well, yeah, actually, we quite like benches in parks. <laughs> we don't want to get rid of all the benches, uh, even though the police are telling us we ought to. I mean, that, that was the example I, I was going to bring up because I found that, I mean, I found many of them fascinating that you mentioned in the article of, uh, you know, I, I think there was the one of the, that where a neighbourhood that would overlook a park so parents could check their children were safe, but then the police said, oh, but other people could look at the children and then, you know, turn turn all the balconies around and, and then the benches that people may gather by a bench. And, and it, it does really sound, I mean, you know, we're speaking in, in the week of the Sue Gray report and everything else. The, the, the police aren't in a, the, the sort of best public spotlight right now, but this, a lot of it feels very petty and, and doesn't seem to, you know, maybe there's things that I don't understand here, but it doesn't seem to have much point to it. Is, are there, you know, are many of these kind of justified by a very good... Are you, is it known that benches are notorious gathering places for sort of the criminal underworld? Um, well, what I would say is it's a classic example of, 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 sort of going after the wrong thing. So, you know, if, you, if you've got an area, particularly like a, 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 a quite a deprived area, let's say, that's sustained kind of decades of austerity, all the youth centres have been closed, the high street's getting run down... Um, if you're a young person in that area, uh, especially if you're from a poor background, you don't have like a large house or, or anything like that, you know, where are you going to go to meet your mates? You can't go to the pub because you're young. So, you know, your, your sort of best option is to hang around outside. Um, and often the like literally the only <laughs> the only spot is like that one bench in the park that was you know donated by someone in memory of their late husband or whatever. And so the, what the police will do is they'll come along and they'll be like, oh, there's, there's young people hanging out on this bench. And, and every now and then they leave some litter, you know, they drop a crisp packet or something. Um, we'll take away the bench and that will solve the problem. But of course, all you're really doing then is just displacing those young people to, you know, somewhere else. They're going to have to hang out somewhere and they'll just move on. What we really ought to be doing is saying, well, what's the kind of root problem here? It, it's not young people wanting to socialize that's that's good we want it's good that people socialize the problem is that there's no good facilities to enable that to happen like that we, we've got rid of all the kind of decent places where where young people might be able to hang around so i think it's a combination of, of the police kind of acting on stigma acting on prejudice sort of going after particular communities and, and that tends to be younger ethnically diverse more deprived communities 
and then also tackling the wrong problem, not looking at the root causes, but sort of, you know, focusing on the symptoms. It's a little bit like saying, you know, it's, it's a problem that people binge drink. So what we're going to do is we're going to ban pubs. Like it's that it's that level of, of sort of stupidity. It's sort of, you know, people shouldn't cheat on their wives. So if, if we ban marriage, then they won't be able to cheat on their wives because there won't be any wives yeah. for them to cheat on. It's, it's, it's sort of really, really dumb thinking, but that is, that is sadly the kind of level of um, engagement that we, we, we are getting from some police officers on this issue. It's, I mean, it's really ridiculous. It's, it, you know, I, I sort of want to ask the question really whether police should be involved in these design processes. But actually, I think there's a bigger question of, you know, the planning system as it is, I, I've, I, it's, it's not my forte anyway, but I find it incredibly confusing. I think a lot of people do. There seems to be so many <laughs> levels to it. And, you know, as, as well as should the police be having a say in this, are, is it all set up so that kind of the people that it affects are locked out of it? You know, is our current planning system working for, for communities? Um, I think there there are times where the planning system like really, really works, um, and the dream is that you live in this sort of highly democratic situation where local people are empowered to have a say over any new development in their area through the planning process, um, and sometimes that's having a say as in you know supporting something kind of endorsing a, a, a new school that's, that's proposed for the area. And sometimes it's having a say as in resisting something, you know, don't build that, um, I don't know, 5G tower on, on top of my playground or something. We like the playground. Um, so there, there, there are times where I feel very affectionate towards the planning system because it, it does give us, the people, a voice. Um, but I'd say there are, there are Having said that, there are there are times when um, it's clearly it clearly doesn't work, and one of the the most obvious ones is that it prioritizes certain groups above other groups. So it tends to prioritize older people who have a bit more time, a bit more money, a bit more to lose, and and have the kind of um, uh, are kind of culturally able to take part in planning meetings at the local bingo hall or, or whatever. Um, Young people kind of get locked out of that whole process. Um, so that's a, a kind of really obvious problem. Uh, and then it also prioritizes certain institutions. So the police, in this case, clearly get a lot of sway in the planning process in the, in the same way that, it, 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 unlike, say, like a local civic society or a local youth group. So we, we could, we could, there could be a sort of future where the police continue to have some sort of involvement but that it's massively reduced and it's better balanced against other types of institution and organisation. Um, but personally, I'm a Londoner. I've seen the you know, police conduct in, over recent years, uh, particularly around um, the murder of Sarah Everard and the, the, the strip searching of, of the child in the school in, in Hackney. And I'm sort of on the, on the side of actually, you know, these, these, this institution is seriously broken and just needs to sort of back off from meddling in decisions about public space and, and, and pu civic provision for a bit, and maybe in a few years' time, when they've proved that uh, conduct has improved and that there's no longer institutional racism and sexism in, 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 in the Metropolitan Police, at least, um, perhaps we can have a conversation about how they might be enfranchised back into the planning process. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree with that. And, I, you know, it's, it's, it's also on a, on a different level. I, I suppose it's not really something you think of the police for this kind of design <laughs> the 
design ability. So I think there's also uh, that that element to it. It's not, um, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure advice on security is, is useful, but to have a, a major say. I mean, it's it's interesting you say that young people are. You know, I, 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 I'm definitely, I'm not a young person at all, but even I find that kind of hassle. We, we, we live in an area of North London where there's loads of, there's been loads of planning changes recently. We've just changed council, May, so we'll see what happens. But um, we regularly just get sent a letter that says, this number building is going to be demolished and be this bigger building. Send your thing by this date that seems to have been two days ago. And and it's all such a hassle, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and often yeah, me and my yeah. wife will kind of go, oh, we should email. I don't really like to say that, but you never get round to it. And, it, you know, it's, it, it, it always seems to be eff- I know I know sending an email isn't that much effort. I realise I'm making myself sound very lazy here, but it, it does all seem to be more research. You've got to find where the building is, work out what the proposals mean, and then but you know, and and I end up thinking, oh, it's down the road. I don't care. And um, you know, I, I wondered. Um, you know, one one of these proposals of the leveling up scheme, and and God knows if if any of these things are going to happen. But in theory, the leveling up uh, scheme that the government are pushing is to allow kind of locally led development corporations, and they really want to involve people in planning, uh, supposedly. And I, I wondered, is that sort of a, a promising idea? Is is that the, you know, is, is what they're proposing so far the ways in which we should be going about it? Are there better ways to kind of get people involved in how their area should be? Yeah, I mean, I'm afraid I'm a, a bit of a, a cynic when it comes to um, this particular government <laughs> and their approach to the planning system. Um, it, it does feel to me, particularly with the sort of appointments of Michael Gove and some of the moves that he's made, that um, the the plan is they're worried that Boris Johnson is so unpopular um, that they they can't afford to piss off Tory voters in in the sort of shires and the home counties anymore. Um, and so the, this idea that you could have sort of street committees or street referenda on on, um, on new developments is all about making those kind of NIMBY communities um, chill out and um, uh, keep voting conservative um, because it, it gives them a kind of very strong tool to stop any um, new housing developments in their area. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm very critical of bad development when bad development is brought forward. But I also think that we have a housing crisis and that we, we do need to be building more houses, good houses, better houses. Um, and so I'm very skeptical that this, this, um, this kind of new, new approach will, will lead to that level of, of construction that's probably required if we do want to uh, bring our, our housing market under control and provide enough of places for people to live. Um, but, you know, in terms of like, how can we do it better? Or like, what can we learn? There's loads of lessons that could be learned from Europe. Europe, you know, not everywhere in Europe, but a lot of European countries have much more sophisticated um, planning systems than us. Um, it, there's a concept in Belgium, for example, called the Baumeister. And so each city, each region, each town has uh, appointed a kind of chief architect, kind of Baumeister, who, who is a really kind of thoughtful person uh, who leads um, the planning. So instead of just leaving it to kind of profit-driven private sector organizations to come up with proposals for where to build houses, which is what we do in Britain, we just wait until the private sector has an idea and then we say yes or no. Instead of doing that, we empower a Baumeister, a, a kind of um, a city architect, to do that work, to think, okay, well, where, where should the new houses go? Where should the new schools go? You know, how, how are we going to solve this problem 
And then you put that to the private sector and say, okay, here's, here's where you can build. Um, take it or leave it. And actually, if you, if you talk to um, uh, you know, property developers, they're quite into this idea. They'd really like a bit more clarity, a bit more leadership from, from government and local government. So it's not like this would be bad for business or anything. Um, but we, we, we've never really done it since um, the 1980s. We've always, we have this, this real kind of um, commitment to just waiting to see what the private sector will come up with um, and then either giving them planning permission or denying them planning permission. I, I think that's a really um, ineffective way of doing um, urban development and it's one of the reasons many communities feel so disenfranchised is because every time there's an idea, it's, it's come from this kind of slightly... Uh, bonkers profit-driven system rather than coming from a really thoughtful public servant who's put a lot of time and effort into figuring out exactly what the best proposal is rather than what the most profitable proposal is. And do you think that's that's why you know we've got such a element of nimbyism in you know as I, as I say even with the emails even with the letters that I get sent it's always if you object it's never if you if you approve but you'd like to make some suggestions or you know it's it's always if you object and and so <laughs> we, it really always does feel that all you ever hear about are people saying we don't want a wind farm it'll be too noisy we don't ever hear about people saying actually we'd like this positive change to our area and is that do you think that's because of the the way in which it's set up as opposed to something like was it a bowmaster which i think is a fantastic idea that you know something like that which actually has somebody who knows the area and and can suggest things that might you know might make changes that people need yeah i, I definitely think that's part of it it's, it's like nimb- nimbyism is um to some extent responding to the fact that we get a lot of bad proposals and we get a lot of bad proposals because we, we we don't come up with a plan we just wait for the private sector to do something and then respond to it um, I guess I think that there's a number of reasons that have contribute to why why Britain, particularly rural Britain, is is so kind of um, scatological about new development. <laughs> um, and partly it's got to do with rent because we have such poor um, renters' rights in Britain compared to say Germany or Scandinavia that. Being a landlord is is just like really fun in Britain. Like it's re- really empowered. Your renters have very little control, um, and that that you know that that's been the case for years. And what it, it means is that um, people have understood that owning property and controlling property is like a it's a really safe bet in Britain. Like it's um, uh, it gives you a huge advantage in terms of your kind of earnings or, or kind of stability relative to a renter. And so people get really defensive about their their land. And this is, you know, people will make this kind of joke that this has always been the case and a, an Englishman's home is their castle and all this stuff. Actually, it's kind of new. Like in the, in the, in the, in the, in the fifth, in the, I think it's in the 1979, um, almost half the population are renting property from local authorities. So almost half the population, and it's not quite half, but it's, it's getting there, uh, are renting from public, the public sector. And that's not including the private sector, rental sector. So that's, you know, not, that's not that long ago, in the 70s, that, that renting was a really big deal in Britain. Um, and it's only really with the advent of, of the right to buy and um, some sort of uh, big changes in, in kind of empowering landlords and empowering people who own property um, that we've really swung away from the kind of possibility of renting as a good and stable um, uh, choice. 
Uh, and I think that has come along with a real kind of oh, angst about protecting your land and protecting your village or, or your town from shit development that might detract from its um, property value. That's really fascinating. I had no idea so many people used to rent. I, I'm, I'm a renter and it is... Uh, I mean, it's also infuriating because I think also you don't invest in the area you're in if you're a renter because you, you don't know how long you're going to be there for, um, you know, yeah. hopefully for a while. Yeah, which is that's that's just not the case in, in, in other countries. In Germany, if you're a renter, you have the right to that home forever. You know, your landlord cannot evict you. They cannot raise the rents beyond a, a certain kind of um, regulated amount each year. I think they can evict you if they want to move into your flat, but that's literally the only circumstance in which they are able to um, kick you out. So, so in o- other countries, renters are, are massively better protected. You're able to paint the walls, you're able to have pets, all of these things that renters in Britain are, are, are frequently denied. Um, we're the odd one out. Our, our European um, cousins uh, treat renters much better than, than we do. So it's no wonder that landlords um, get so protective because they understand uh, that they've got something really unusual um, and very empowering relative to, say, Germans. Um, and so they want to pr- hang on to it. They want to protect their wealth. But I think we've got to challenge that culture. So, yeah, so, I mean, clearly housing is, is one of the biggest issues uh, in, uh, you know, in architecture that we have in, in the UK at the moment, um, with, with renting being an issue, but also a complete lack yeah. of housing. But I wondered if there are other priorities and things that we should be developing too. You know, there's been a lot of talk about how we should be living in 15-minute cities, you know, and, and and having areas around us that kind of cater for everything. Is is that something that, that planning should be looking at? What are the areas that you reckon need to be kind of focused on to make the UK more accessible and, and open to everyone? Yeah, well, I, 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 I clearly think that housing is really, really important. But um, I also um, feel that uh, uh, transport and public space um, uh, 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 have to be at the centre of any meaningful attempt to bring our carbon emissions under control. Um, Britain is actually a very car crazy country compared to other places. I think, you know, Will Self once told me that um, Americans actually spend less than Brits do as a proportion of their income on their car. So uh, we think of America as this sort of very car dominated super state, but actually we are spending more money on cars than they are um, uh, as a proportion of our our kind of household income. And um, so, and, you know, that's, Cars, cars are great, you know. Cars are sort of super at times, but they 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 also come with enormous problems. Um, partly that's to do with pollution and, and, and carbon, but um, even even apart from that, they, they 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 kill people. They knock people over. They carve up neighbourhoods. Um, they can really kind of debilitate uh, the capacity of an area to flourish if it if if just the, the presence of cars is, is so kind of overwhelming um that uh they, they they feel very inaccessible maybe to children or to older people uh to people who want to keep pets i don't know there's all there's all sorts of um ways that that, that cars can put strain and stress on um on on urban life and so I'd, I'd really like to see the planning system get much much stronger on how we kind of um, uh, wean ourselves off off what I think is probably a car addiction in in this country, uh, and that's partly about um, really good public transport alternatives, 
Um, it's partly about really good cycle infrastructure, e-bikes, cargo bikes, cycling lanes, cycle hire schemes. Um, and it's partly about making walkable neighborhoods with a, that are child-friendly and wheelchair-friendly. And um, there's all, all sorts of kind of small things that happen every day that um, uh, make that reality slightly further from, 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 uh, from reach. Um, every time they, they sort of, you know, build a big, um, these telegraph masts, they sort of put them in the pavement and then it gets a bit harder for an old person to get around. And um, uh, we're making sort of slow progress, uh, but it's not, it's, it's too slow. It's, too, it's far too slow. Uh, it still feels really scary in some parts of the city, and I live in London, to, to, to get on a bike Um and uh, until we can make it feel like the city is a, in, genuinely inclusive of all people, um, including wheelchair users and cyclists and children, then I think we're going to uh, really kind of struggle to get our carbon emissions under control. But we're also just going to struggle to make kind of happy, livable places. Like the 15-minute city is, is like nowhere near um, a reality for, for the vast majority of, of, of Brits uh, because we're so addicted to kind of car-based urbanism. Is, is that something that we, we have to do? We have to do it on a national scale? Or do you think, is it something that, that you know, communities can start to do? I, I, I know there's obviously no nowhere near the money in local government or in local areas, but is it something that can be started at a smaller level that people can kind of get involved in? Or does this need, this does need the big decisions from uh, from government? Um, yeah, I, I think it can happen at both scales. I mean, you know, you say there's nowhere near the money. We're still the sixth wealthiest nation on earth. Like, you know, we used to be fifth, but we're still sixth. <laughs> like, that's still pretty good. Um, there's a there's an awful lot of money sloshing around Britain. It's not getting spent because it's going to, or it's going to like the profits of whatever, like Thames Water or whatever. But but the idea that we live in a kind of poverty stricken country that can't afford to build a cycle lane is 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 totally absurd. We've got loads of cash, which we're choosing not to spend it. Uh, and actually, what well, what you what you find is if you look at places that have pedestrianized seriously, like Copenhagen, for example, is very quickly, you actually get more, economic, <laughs> more economic activity because suddenly people, they don't just sort of pop into town to buy one thing and pop back in their car. They'll, they'll go into town and they'll spend the whole day there. They'll kind of linger, they'll enjoy being in town because it won't be so kind of clogged with traffic. Um, and they end up spending more money and, you know, in a in a very kind of prosaic, very capitalist way, um, there's a strong case for for better pedestrianisation and, and, and active travel because of that. Um, but it totally can happen at different scales. Like I, I really, there's this very very rural village called Hook Norton um, on the edge of the Cotswolds, um, which you know from the outside looks like kind of Tory heaven. It's sort of very twee, very picturesque. But they've got a really banging car club where residents. Um, pooled together to buy two electric cars. And um, now that means a whole load of people in that village don't need their own car Amazing. because they can just use the, 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 the village's car um, when they need to. And they pay, you know, like a couple of pounds a day or, or whatever the kind of rental system is. So that's an example of like a very small, very rural community um, doing something. And then I think we also should be thinking at local authority levels and also at national government levels. So it, 
it, it can happen at any scale. That is fascinating. What a brilliant scheme. I love that. Um, amazing. Well, well, um, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Uh, two more things. Uh, firstly, I, I wonder if you could tell us about Open City that you're a part of um, and how listeners can get involved in that because I know there's Open City uh, in the UK and particularly in London, but also there's Open City, I believe, all around the world. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So we've we Open City is, is yeah, it's an international charity. We we are, we're most famous for what we call open house festivals, which are, are kind of enormous citywide celebrations of cool buildings and cool landscapes, um, everywhere from New York to London to Lagos to Vienna to Zurich to Osaka. Um, so if you're if you're even remotely interested in exploring cool architecture or, or kind of learning firsthand about what makes a great social housing estate or what makes a really good cutting edge school, then uh, yeah, look up open house festivals because um, they're usually completely free and they usually have an enormous range of stuff going on at them. Uh, open City does a whole load of other stuff. We, we we have our own podcast. We make films. We publish books. Um, we do a lot of education work. So if you're, if you're a young person and you're interested in a kind of career in city making or architecture, that might be relevant to you. Um, but yeah, our main, our main kind of public thing is these massive free festivals. The one in London's coming up in, in September and it should be really fun. Sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, I, I think I said to you before we recorded, I have been meaning to go for years. I'm going to get off my bum and do it this year. I promise. I promise. Um, <laughs> And uh, the last question, which is something that I ask all the, the guests on this show, with just that, the hope of kind of furthering good knowledge, um, which is that apart from yourself and, Opal, uh, and Open City, uh, what other groups, campaigns, writers, who would you recommend that listeners check out for good work on, on the politics of architecture or, or anything, really? Who, who are the people that you go to? I think, I mean, the best writer on contemporary politics and architecture is Owen Hathaway. Um in a load of books but also kind of journalists he's he's often in the london review of books sometimes in the guardian i think he's culture editor of tribune magazine and is frequently writing in in that in that magazine um he's incredibly lucid and incredibly knowledgeable comes from a kind of working class background grew up in a council estate and brings a a lot of kind of um really deep thinking to the question of, of of how do you make architecture that is uh, politically sound and ecologically sound and um, beautifully made and designed as well. Uh, so I'd, I'd really recommend looking up the work of Owen Hathaway. Uh, in terms of kind of campaigns, I think, you know, London Cycling Campaign, London Renters Union uh, would relate to some of the things I've mentioned today. They're brilliant organisations. 20th Century Society is very good at kind of campaigning to stop the demolition of, of kind of great social housing estates of the past, uh, and um, if you follow Open City as well, you know, we'll always be kind of shouting out to the, those various campaigns elsewhere. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Thanks tons to Finn for that fascinating chat. Uh, they can be found at Finn, P-H-I-N, Harper on Twitter or at PhineasHarper.com and OpenCity are at open-city.org.uk. Or if you're not in the UK, there's Open City sites all around the world, so go and have a look-see for yours. As Finn mentioned, the Open House Festival in London starts on the 8th of September. I have always, always meant to go and then being totally rubbish, never actually gone. But I know my cousin does and she always says it's absolutely amazing. So be better than me and go along. Um, it is free. It allows you to roam around some truly amazing usually not public venues and sites um, including I think even uh, number 10 Downing Street you can visit if you get tickets so they'll probably be having a party at the time you can go and join in Um, and all details for the uh, Open House Festival are at Open City's website as you may have noticed, uh, I'm not managing to get guests uh, as often as I used to for this show, which isn't out of choice, uh, but more that there seems to be endless bank holidays. Thanks, the Queen. Seriously, stop fucking ruining the show. Um, and also that everyone has burnout and doesn't want to talk to me uh, for, for ages about how depressing things are. So if you know someone who could talk to me about an area of politics that we do need to know about and isn't too tired for me to throw 30 minutes of questions at them in return for, well, me maybe getting the link to their website wrong, then please do recommend them to moi at Partly Political Broadcast at gmail.com and that's it for this week's partly political broadcast podcast if you didn't enjoy it i will apologize uh, then change the email address so no one can let me know they didn't like it anymore i think that's how it works based on the prime minister um if you did enjoy it though and i do hope you did then why not tell everyone between here and the moon to also tune in donate to the ko for your patreon so i can actually afford to do this and give a swanky five-star review at any of the podcast dives these things bubble up from Yes, cheers and that to Acast, my brother, last sceptic and cat day. And this will be back next week when Boris Johnson changes the definition of Boris Johnson to mean someone who is always, always Prime Minister. Bye. This week's show was sponsored by Imperial Measurement Deliveries. We will only deliver your goods in classic British measurements. You want an inch? We'll take a mile. Need a chain of sausages? How about a chain of chain of sausages? That's what I said, a chain of a chain. How much is that? What are you, some kind of foreign traitor? We got roads and roads of goods. All you have to do is hit the link. No, not to our site. We only have our menu carved in a stone off the cobbled road. I meant a link, you know, one one hundredth of a chain. Imperial Deliveries, you won't perch how we twip your slug. And we mean it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.